Way back in 1976, I was 28 years old and began as the pastor of JBC. And uh, back in those days, I typed the bulletin, led worship, did the youth group. But now I don't do anything. And uh, because of the staff we've added over the years, we've got a great staff. They all have their own story. And the youngest, the newest, is Brandon uh, Morris. And uh, are are you 25? 25. I thought I was young when I started. He's just a baby. And uh, when he first started coming to church, he and his wife a couple years ago, I wrote on his card at the end of the service he would like to be mentored. And I thought, I don't know if anybody has ever written that on their card. First Sunday they showed up. So I connected with him and we started meeting. And somewhere along the line, I thought to myself, I really believe God's got some great plans for this young man. I think his hand is on him. And so uh, he became a staff person on our church. He's on the bulletin. And uh, he's in charge of evangelism. And so he's going to introduce himself to you this morning by telling his story. So I'm going to pray for him right now. And then he's going to share. I'm going to head up to the prayer room. If anybody would like to join me, you're welcome. Father, thank you for this morning. We do pray that you would speak through Brandon as he shares. Fill him with your spirit. Grant him a special anointing. And bless each of us by his story. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when he says that I'm the evangelism pastor, that means a few things. That on the back of your connection cards where it says, I want to know more about following Jesus, if someone marks that, then I get in contact with them. So if you mark that one, uh, then I'm the one that contacts you and try to walk you through any sort of questions you may have about Christianity, Jesus, anything. And then I also go to OSU and LBCC campuses uh, throughout the week, and I have a little sign that I hold... um, with a provocative question like, what do you think happens with you di- when you die, etc.? Just to get the ball rolling and start talking to people and witness to them. And a few other things. Titus 3, 3 through 6 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And that is exactly my story. But when, but when, that's so key, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So note number one, by giving our testimony, we tell people of God's goodness to us and trample Satan. Revelation 12.11 says that we, the church, will overcome, or trample, we will overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and on the word of our testimony. And there's a danger in sharing one's testimony, especially in a church setting, because people may uh, look up here and see, man, this kid has it all together, you know, look at what he came through, etc., and then you start flattering me, when in fact that's completely opposite because I was basically dragged by the Holy Spirit into Christianity kicking and screaming. It was not through my own works, through my own deeds. It wasn't through anything that I've done that I've ended up in this position. It's all Jesus and him working through exactly how that verse says, but when the mercy of God appeared. So please don't think any, don't think highly of me, think highly of Jesus. That's the point of pointing to him. So early on, my mom and dad grew up in Southern California on the Sunset Strip, 
partying with Motley Crue and Poison and hair metal bands like that. And so they grew up as children of the 70s and 80s and grew up with the ideals that you had at that time, which was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. My mom was doing methamphetamine by the time she was 15 years old. And as soon as I was born, my dad's mom died. So he, to numb the pain of her loss, he started doing heroin. And so he would pass out with a needle in his arm like this and watching my sister or myself. And so if we walked up and said, what's in dad's arm and grabbed it, touched it, that little bit of heroin in a baby's body, they're dead. And so she said, to protect us, she said, either you quit the heroin or we're leaving. And he chose the drug. So he chose heroin over us. So my mom left. And I think I was about 21 when he passed away from a heroin overdose. So it eventually took his life. And I'm the one that did his uh, eulogy at that point. So my mom moved in with my grandpa. And they started fighting so much because she was still using meth. Um, Back up. I found out while writing this that me, my older sister, and my younger brother were all in utero while my mom was still using, so all three of us are crack babies, but I didn't know that until just a few months ago when I wrote this. And so she kept doing the drug, and that resulted in fights with my grandpa, and so they got evicted from the house. So we started couch surfing from meth house to meth house to meth house, and things got so volatile at one that we'd move to the next, so volatile at that one we'd move to the next, and eventually we ended up at the drug kingpin's house of our town, Oakdale, California, in Central California, near Yosemite. He was the one that the meth would get delivered to him from someone, and then my mom was his drug carrier, basically uh, the donkey who ran it out back and forth, and um, she would take it out and then come back, and so she would consequently leave us for a few days at a time uh, every now and then. And so I remember spending many nights staying up super late, just pounding away her phone number on the phone and then hanging up when she didn't answer and just calling her for two days straight because I didn't know where she was. Once we ended up in Jeff's house, that's when I kind of went from a normal-ish, well-behaved eight-year-old to that was the age when I started smoking weed That was the age when I started drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, breaking into businesses. I was hooked on porn at eight years old. Uh, Under 10, I was already fighting uh, my, or I was already running from the cops and stealing from businesses. At eight years old, I fist fought my third grade teacher. So that's the kind of kid that I was. And I started fighting basically anybody who said anything wrong against me or my family. I was a hateful, spiteful, mean-hearted, angry, lustful little thief. I hated everybody. I hated everyone. I hated you. I hated anyone who had their parents. I hated anyone who had good grades, who had friends, who knew that they had a home to go to. I hated everybody, and I hated myself most of all, and I tried to kill myself twice before I was 15 years old. So Jeff, my mom's um, drug dealer boyfriend, was about 6'4", 300 or so pounds, solid muscle, and he would beat my mom relentlessly. 
uh, if she wasn't fast enough or didn't bring enough drug money back. He would beat her till she was unable to get up. He would go on rampages, drug-induced rampages throughout the house. He'd punch through windows, pull his arm back, slice his arm open, and end up in the hospital. He would scream at us, throw garbage cans at us. He would grab me by my collar and hold me up against the wall and scream and spit. He would lock me out of the house, me and my siblings. He would lock us out of the house in 110 degree or 40 degree weather. It didn't matter. I'll tell you this story as an example of the volatile nature of living in that house. One time he was beating my mom in the other room and I was sleeping and I had school the next day and I remember thinking, you need to stop it. You need to stop it. You need to go in there and stop this from happening. And after a while, I went into the kitchen, got a butcher's knife about this big, and I went and kicked in his wooden door. And again, I was 12, and he's 6'4 of solid muscle. And I said, get away from her. And he did, and he went and sat on his bed, and she came out, and then I went and went back to sleep. And the next day, I woke up, sat at the computer, and I hear him click the door open it up, come and stand behind me, he put his hands on my shoulders like this, and he said, he whispered in my ear, he said, if you ever try something like that again, you'll swallow your teeth. Another formative moment in my life at that house was we had a porch about this high, and I came out one time, and my mom was kneeling on the ground right down there in the grass, kneeling like this, uh, ripping grass out, ripping her clothes, ripping her hair out, middle finger towards the sky, screaming and cussing at God, uh, cussing out Satan, cussing out anyone who would listen, uh, just furious, fuming at God for how her life was going. And that's the spiritual posture that I took on myself, that anger, that hatred, that rage. That's exactly how I behaved, especially towards Christians, especially towards people who had it better than I did. So my mom didn't have very many rules for us, aside from calling in twice a day. So consequently, with all that freedom, I fell into bondage. I was a slave to porn. I was a slave to weed. I was a slave to alcohol, to depression, anger, fear. And that's how I lived until I was 15, about So at 12 years old, I saw on one of my pop buddy's calendars, Wednesday night, every Wednesday night had a U-turn marked on it. And I said, what is that? And he goes, oh, it's a place we go and we have fun and play games and listen to music and eat snacks, etc. And I said, I'm into those things, let's go. And so we went. And when I got there, it was a youth group, and U-turn means repentance, And when I got there, it was vastly different from any place I'd ever been because the adults at this place were loving and they were patient and they were kind. All the adults I had grown up with, like my mom abandoned us weekly, multiple times a week. Jeff, the only father figure that I had, was a crazy psychopath on meth. Uh, My grandpa was too scared to come near the situation My aunts and uncles, uh, especially my dad, uh, never made an attempt to try to better the situation that we were in. That's the example that I had for adults. And then these people, these Christians at this youth group are loving, they're patient, they're kind, they help me with things. I had pants that I used to walk around like this because they were 
I don't know, size 42, I think, and I needed 32. And so I would hold them up like this and walk around. I had shoes with holes in them so big that if you stepped outside once, your socks were soaked. And these people were getting me pants and getting me shoes and getting me school binders because I would have panic attacks because I didn't have a school binder and I knew that I needed one for English or whatever. So the church there at River Oak Grace in Oakdale loved me in a way that was completely foreign to me, in a way that was not normal at all. And I knew, sitting under the preaching that they had, and sitting under the mentorship of certain men, especially uh, one of the pastor's kids and um, a missionary to West Africa, that Christianity is not something that is relegated to Sunday mornings it's not part of your life. It's not just a, me- or a prayer before mealtime. It's central or it's nothing. And I knew that. And I knew that if it was going to be something, part of my life, I knew it had to be the entirety of my life. Everything had to circle around it. So I decided after three years that I would join a Bible study, not to learn more about Christianity, but to disprove Christianity because I didn't want it to be true. And that's insane because if you know Christianity has been around 2,000 years with 6,000 years before that of Judaism and yet foolish 15-year-old Brandon says, I'm going to disprove Christianity. So I joined the Bible study and we started going through a Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. You can write that one down if you're looking for a book with more information. Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. I missed note number two. Charles Spurgeon said, if Christ be anything, he must be everything. If Christ be anything, he must be everything. So, we start reading the book. And a bunch of other ones, but that one mostly. And seeing these prophecies, it was was prophecies especially that the Holy Spirit got me with because and not just future end-time prophecies about helicopters and stuff like that, but prophecies about Jesus by name, where he was going to be born, how he was going to live, what he was going to do throughout his life, the exact day he walks into Jerusalem, the day that he dies, the day that he rises from the dead. And if anyone says, hey, just so you know, they're going to kill me this way, I'm going to die for three days, and then come back to life, anyone who pulls that off is worthy of being heard. So I saw those things, and I said, I, you win. I can't ignore it. But I still wasn't there. I wasn't happy about Christianity being true. I didn't even want it to be true. When someone gets saved, truly born again, headed for heaven, God gives them a new heart with new desires. And I wasn't there yet. But through reading my Bible, through being mentored, over a period of time, it started happening slowly. And as an example, uh, remember that I was very violent, very violent. These kids had been, they were football players, they were wealthy, they had vehicles, they had pretty girlfriends, they had good grades, basically everything you want in high school. And I had none of those things, so I instantly didn't like them. But then they took it a step further and started saying heinous, 
vile things about my sister, my older sister, who was a cheerleader. She was pretty, she was smart, she had all that going on. And they would say just nasty, nasty things. And if you know high school boys, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I decided one day, I'm sick of living. I'm sick of listening to these guys' garbage. I'm going to kill them. So I showed up to school, uh, fifth, 15, sophomore year. Uh, I sat in a desk right here, and one sat right here, and one sat here. And I had a backpack with a claw hammer in it. And I knew, I said, if they say anything, it's over. And they'd been doing this for years, years and years since I was in junior high. And I had it handle up so I knew that I could do it quickly. And that was the one day that I remember them not saying anything. And so that's the hand of God somehow working, restraining their slander against my sister and restraining me from murder. And I remember walking home and just thinking how different life could have been. Someone came up to me last service and said, isn't it crazy to think that you would still be in prison right now for that? And I said, yeah, it would be crazy. Again, as, as an example of how God changes, so think of that person. And then about six months later, I was at a community function in a uh, park with my brother. Long story short, four guys decided they wanted to fight me. And that was no problem for me. I'd fought multiple people before, and I, was, I cheated, so I won. I would bite, scratch, everything. Um, it didn't matter, because I was going to win. So when these four guys came up and challenged me, uh, one of them put their fist in my eye and broke my glasses, cut my eyelid right here. I... Every other fight I'd ever been in before, instantly, if you've been in one, you know that blood boiling that kind of happens and you just kind of snap. Well, you might not know, but I know. And you guys don't seem that violent. Just kidding. This one. Um, so that didn't happen. That blood boiling didn't happen. And... I was good at wrestling, so I jumped on him, and I grabbed his hands, and I remember instead of thinking, this dude's dead, which is what happened every other time before, I'd put kids in the hospital for fighting them, I grabbed him by his hands, and I'm holding him down, and I said, stop hitting me, I'm trying to help you. So going from a kid who's willing to beat someone to death with a hammer, to now saying, please stop, I want to help you. His friends started football kicking me in the head, and so I'd decided uh, they win, and so I curled up in a ball, and they beat on me for a little while, and then they, they finish, and they start walking away, and I pick up my glasses uh, that were busted, and I shouted after them. I said, I forgive you. Now, remember, that could not have been, that could not have possibly have been from me, because just less than a year before, I wanted to kill somebody with a hammer, and now these kids, I'm saying I forgive them, it is only God, it is only God, it's only God who can give someone a new heart, new desires, not to live like the old man, but to now be changed. So the church in Oakdale basically became my family. They raised me, they helped me with everything. And 
As I said, it was a slow and painful transition. It was not a quick overnight thing. But I knew from them just listening to them reading the Bible, I knew that Christianity, even before I was a Christian, Christianity cannot just be a weekend thing. It can't be a Sunday morning thing. It's not a thing. It's a person. It's Jesus. And so knowing that Jesus cannot be peripheral, sideline, I knew I was destined for the mission field because I was mentored by a missionary. So I wanted to have some sort of physical skill to help them with uh, wherever I went, and I decided medical stuff was pretty cool, so I was going to go to school to be a paramedic, but I ended up becoming just an EMT, and I did that for about five years uh, before quitting that here in Jefferson to do uh, ministry here. And Emma, my wife, was called into God are called by God into foreign missions as well as a nurse, as a nurse missionary. So when I saw her heart, how kind and compassionate and caring she was, I couldn't be bothered with staying single, and we got married July 15th, 2016. So from an abused, neglected, abandoned, hateful, wicked, vengeful, mean-hearted, angry thief, Two, by God's amazing grace and mercy, a ransomed, redeemed, born-again child of God. From someone who hurt people to someone who heals people, from someone who hated people to someone who loves people, from someone who's an enemy of the kingdom of God to someone being used by God to bring others into his kingdom. Note number three, this is the gospel. I am a sinner. Jesus died in my place. If I repent of my sins and trust his sacrifice, I will be saved. This is what the gospel is. The good news is that if anyone, no matter how much they have sinned, no matter how much you have sinned, anyone would turn from their sin, meaning repent, and put their faith and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, God will save you if you forsake all self-righteousness and trying to earn your way into heaven by being a good person. And trust Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. He will save you. He will adopt you into his family. He will give you a new heart and give you the Holy Spirit. And the consequence for this is eternal damnation. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So here's that ultimatum that I was faced with. Next note on the backside is, here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. If Christianity is false, it is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Unimportant infinitely important. Those are the only two options. It's one or the other. There is no fence that you get to straddle. We can't be halfway in, halfway out. If you're on the fence, know this. Satan owns the fence. You're on his team. You're all in or you're all out, period. His disciples that walked with him there was 12 plus a bunch more, were driven by two things. They said, Jesus is Lord, 
He's sovereign. He's king over the entire world. And he rose from the dead. If they would recant those things, if they would say, yep, he's not king, Caesar is king, I'm sorry. If they would say, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I'm sorry, they wouldn't have been murdered. They wouldn't have been killed. This is how they were killed. John was boiled alive in oil, uh, but lived after that. Bartholomew was flayed to death with a whip in modern Turkey. Matthew was impaled with spears in Ethiopia. James was thrown off a cliff and clubbed to death. Jude was crucified by Magi. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Simon was crucified in Persia. James was beheaded in Palestine. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India. Peter was crucified upside down. Philip was hung upside down by iron hooks. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. And Paul was beheaded. I saw a video someone sent to me on Facebook. And I sometimes wish I wouldn't have clicked into it. But basically what it was was a Hindu girl in India where Christianity is persecuted, not like here where obviously no one's busting in here wholesale trying to shoot all of us just for being in here. She was a Hindu girl who just went to a prayer meeting, Christian prayer meeting, that's it. She didn't convert. She didn't say Jesus is Lord. She did, I, as far as I'm aware, all she went to is the prayer meeting. Her family and village beat her, drug her into the street, poured oil on her and burnt her to death. And I heard her screams and I heard the screams and hoots and hollers of all her friends and family laughing as they burnt her to death. So what drives certain people to live like that and then us here in comfortable America to think that we can straddle the fence? Christ was not peripheral to them. Next note, Christ cannot be peripheral. Christ cannot be peripheral. Here's what he says in his own words. You don't have to take my word for it. Luke 9, 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Matthew seven twenty four, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rain, yeah, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword." For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Christ cannot be peripheral. Other words for the term peripheral are secondary, subsidiary, incidental, marginal, minor, unimportant, lesser, inessential, non-essential, superficial, borderline. Next note is idolatry is regarding anything is more important than Jesus, than God. Same thing. Now imagine with me 
walking up to God, the creator of the universe, who made the biggest star, the smallest atom, who made music and light and sound, food that tastes good, the clothes that you're wearing, gave you everything. There's not a single person in here who's controlling the beat of their heart. He's the one that did all those things, and yet imagine with me walking up to him and saying, God, you're unimportant, you're peripheral, you're borderline, you're less than this thing. And most of us think, well, I would never say that. But do we behave that way? Do our heart motivations show that? Actions are one thing because we can religiously obey a bunch of rules, make life look great, show up to church on Sunday, do all these nice things, give 10%, 20% of our money, and we think that we're good, except for our heart motivations. Have we treasured something in our heart more than we've treasured God? That is the definition of idolatry that I just gave. And think of the insanity with me of going to God and saying, God, this thing that you created is more important than you are. That's exactly how we treat him when we put other things before him. And we've all told God by our actions that other things are more important than he is. Whether it's nature, hunting, family, kids, spouse, car, house, video games, movies, books, entertainment, sex, drugs, pornography, music, jobs, career, prestige, status, comfort, or anything else. We've all treasured those things above God at some point or another. As an example, when's the last time, and this is something that I have to examine myself with too, writing this was probably the most convicting thing I've ever done, so I'm not pointing at you, beating over your head, I'm saying this is just as much for me. But when's the last time you got as excited about someone getting saved as you did a football game? When's the last time you were as excited to spend time in prayer as you were watching a movie or a TV show? It doesn't matter whether it's a sin thing, sex, drugs, porn, or not sex, sex is a good thing that God gave us, you know, drugs, pornography, etc., all these other things. Whether it's that or it's a good thing, like family, like babies, anything, putting it above God is sin. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Gain, he says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That list that I mentioned earlier, what do we hold, what do you hold as gain right now? What do you hold in your heart is more important than God? Paul says those things must be counted as trash, as garbage, as waste. He's counted them as loss. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? You could add, didn't I show up to church on Sunday? Didn't I give 10% of my money? Didn't I show up to prayer meeting? Whatever you want. Didn't I do this thing that 
should give me salvation? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Are any of us saying, Lord, Lord, with our lips, but our hearts are far from him? There's nothing that scares me more than thinking that you don't have tomorrow. I don't know if, you, if we understand that. You may not live the rest of today. There's, I was an EMT for five years. I saw a lot of people die. People who were young, who thought that they were just going to work, got in a car accident dead. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Jesus, you need to turn to him today, right now. It does, you don't have to run up here and give your life in front of the altar. You can just do it inside. You repent from your sins, turn to Christ for salvation, period, and he will save you. And some of us who are Christian are treating something else as more important, and we need to repent of that. This social climate that we're in, in America currently, is our fault. We're the ones that are not praying. We're the ones not interceding for our kids, for our families, for the nation. It's our fault that the nation is the way that it is, and we need to repent. We need to start treating God like he's the most important thing because he is. So, if you don't mind with me, we're going to close. Yeah, close your eyes, please. We're just going to take a 30 seconds, maybe a minute, and just pray and ask God to reveal to each of us whatever that thing is. And I, Lord, I beg you for the courage for me, for my brothers and sisters and friends here, God. Give us the courage to forsake whatever that is. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace towards us. Lord, while we are still sinning, you died for the ungodly, and we can't do anything apart from you. You said so. God, I can't do anything apart from you. There's no point for me to even be talking if you're not empowering this, God. We can't keep our hearts beating. We can't do anything apart from you, Lord. Please forgive us for behaving like we can. God, give us the strength and the courage and the wisdom and give us the love for you, God, to turn away from whatever that thing is that's holding us back from being completely sold out for you. Lord, please forgive us and thank you. Thank you for forgiving us, God. You're so good. You're so merciful and you're so kind. You're so kind, God. Amen.